0: Helping clients meet their financial goals and prepare for the future, Schroder's actively and responsibly manages investments. The world is forever changing, and we understand the need to adapt and evolve in line with what matters most to our clients.
1: Hello, my name's John Schaefer, and welcome to the CityWire Wealth Manager podcast. Today, I spoke with Duncan McIntyre, who's the UK CEO of Lombardodia we looked at how the private bank has fared during the COVID-19 pandemic, the worries of its ultra-wealthy client base, and how the firm is leveraging its tech platform. If you'd like to get the latest updates on our podcast, please hit the follow button on Spotify. How has the business fared during the the, uh, the pandemic?
0: Well, look, I mean, it's been, a, it's been an interesting year, if that's a diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, I mean clearly the 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 year actually for us has been good we've just published our half one results which really take in the whole of the pandemic period and you know our assets were very resilient we're up uh, we're at about 290 billion swiss francs of assets we've had very strong net new money numbers uh, and our operating income for the first six months of 2020 was actually up 16% at 674 million Swiss francs. And I think that's really been driven by, you know, strong net new money flows, which I mentioned, and then, you know, a lot of client activity during the volatile months. So, you know, on, on a business level, it has been good um, and the clients are happy. Uh, they've stuck with our advice, which was to stay invested and, and not to capitulate. Uh, and that's proven to be a very good strategy. Um, but I think on a human level, there's clearly people... Uh, getting used to uh, this different way of being. And, uh, you know, clearly one of those is getting people back into the office as we get into the end of 2020 and beyond.
1: Sure. I mean, would you be able to break down some of those figures for the UK business?
0: Uh, no, we don't have any, we, we only ever publish anything at a, at a bank level.
1: Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe anecdotally, maybe not being specific about the figures, what have you yeah, the inflows being like, yep. and what what is the AUM growth like on the UK side?
0: Yeah, so you know the the UK business has had a had a had a strong year. We've had both strong revenue numbers and we've had strong asset numbers. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, um, very strong, uh, top end of single digit asset growth numbers um, and revenue numbers north of uh, uh, into double digits. So it's been a, it's been a good year. Um, and, you know, I think that's a reflection of of the business model that we operate. I mean, I think clients have really come towards it. And, you know, in this time of uncertainty, there is an, an inherent flight to quality. And I think that we've seen that you know, Lombard Odier, as you know, is, is one of the highest capitalized banks in the world. We are, uh, we have a tier one capital ratio of 29%. Um, and uh, we are a double A-minus rated bank by Fitch, which I think is the highest rating it's possible for a bank of our size to achieve. So uh, these are, are very important statistics when when clients are looking for uh, safe places to house their, their money in this uncertain time.
1: Um wanted to look at the concerns of your clients. You, you just mentioned perhaps that they were sticking in markets, but there are a lot of human level concerns I mean, what, what have they been, and, and perhaps some of the the concerns on the investment side as well
0: yeah look I mean I think that the the client's behavior has you know I think like all of us, it's been a very human reaction it hasn't been a uh, a, a big strategic reaction it's you know as one of the bankers characterized it to me when when they spoke to me, they said it, it feels like five stages of grief from Panic, worry, then into anger, and then an element of depression, and then into acceptance. So I think there's been a a big process that people have gone through, and I think we can all we can all relate to that in our in our own lives. Um, I think that we've also seen um, clients having a lot more time. So one of the things that we've been able to take advantage of is really having a lot of time to talk to clients. We've been communicating a lot we have a a small but very wealthy client base and that's enabled us to spend time with them so conversations that we may have only got 10 minutes before we're now we were getting an hour in the height of the uh lockdown so that's been good it's been a good chance for us to talk through worries beyond beyond just the financial worry
1: has that put added pressure on you then uh, having to have more time with your clients then
0: well I mean, you know the best bit of this job is time with clients if, I, if I'm really frank, so I think that that uh, that has not put pressure on us, but I think it's been, it's been interesting to be part of that broader conversation with clients about how they cope with really totally unprecedented elements and I think the other thing I've seen come out of it is quite a lot of conversations about. Um, wealth transfer. You know, I think clients have really thought about you know uh, their own mortality, uh, the the generation planning that they need to put in place, and the time to do it. And I think as families have been together, it's been an extraordinary time to have those conversations where they maybe haven't had them so openly in the past. So we've spent a lot of time on the uh, wealth planning side, um, looking at. How we can look at that, uh, that succession issues.
1: And, and uh, to be crude, has there, has there been a, a sort of rush to people putting in wealth planning measures, sort of f- feeling perhaps a greater risk with, with the disease being around?
0: Yeah, I, I, I I don't think it was it was a, it was a, it was a morbid question about their their own life I think it was more about the fact that there was time together to discuss it and I think that you know uh, intergenerational transfer is a, is a critically important thing to be able to do and have that chance to discuss wealth. I mean, we have one example where, uh, you know, we were on a client call and the, and the client asked the banker whether, you know, their, their child could join in that conversation. And that, that's a very important part of seeing that transfer taking place where, where, where the next generation are being brought into the conversation. And and that can only be a good thing in terms of, in terms of planning and, and structuring of wealth.
1: And how about some of the clients that are are business owners, how have they interacted with you? Has it meant that they've had to perhaps withdraw some funds prematurely?
0: Um, We have had, I mean, there's there's certainly, I mean, as you know, it's completely industry dependent. So some industries have been doing extraordinarily well. But if you're in the hospitality sector and others, it's it's been tough. And we have had some examples of clients wanting to either leverage their portfolios or to withdraw cash. But it's been a been a very, very limited uh, amount. You know, I think that that the good advice of any private banker is don't invest what you can't afford to invest. Um, and and so, you know, we have seen very, very little withdrawals. Um, and indeed, we've seen some clients speculating to buy businesses externally uh, based on um, some opportunities that have arisen during this period.
1: I think that that moves on to what have been the investment trends. Um, you say buying businesses. Has there been more movement in private equity, for example?
0: Yeah, look, it's a good question. So um, I think that, 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 you know, during the crisis, we were we were very clear that uh, our baseline scenario was going to be a deep contraction in H1 followed by really a kind of non-linear recovery depending on the sector. And our black scenario was that we'd have a sort of economic shutdown that extends beyond 2020. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen scenario one, our base scenario, really pan out. We've seen a, a, a good recovery. And I think, as you say, uh, as we said, that the clients that have stuck with our core advice have, have done well. Uh, I mean, the, the four priorities that we really identified was that we wanted the portfolios to remain liquid um, so we could be agile within them. Uh, we wanted uh, to protect, uh, particularly against anticipated drops in, say, the oil price. We wanted to try and shield some of the downside by using some protection strategies, um, and uh, um, and we really wanted to allow the portfolios to to benefit from the recovery that we saw coming in our in our base scenario. I mean, I think I think where we are today, as of today, I think what we see is that you know we're coming out we're coming out of the worst of this uh, COVID crisis, but I also think that the best of the recovery is also behind us. So we are. In, in, in an interesting next phase, as we as we go into this, um, and so I think as we as we look forward now, um, I suppose our our strategic asset allocation is really is really telling us three things. Uh, I think the first one is that we really do see China as a standalone allocation. Uh, and I think that's quite a strong statement that we've made around really treating China as a, uh, as a real economic powerhouse and not uh, putting it into its, its historic bucket of uh, emerging markets. We've also um, seen a lot of work going on around uh, thematic value. So what I mean by that, we've seen demographic changes, climate changes, digitalization changes. So we've been playing very strongly into those themes. Um, and then the last one as you mentioned is we've been really looking to broaden uh, the investment horizon so that includes uh, private equity but it also includes gold uh, and we've been we've been big holders of gold uh, for a long period now um, and uh, and we're still holding uh, about three percent of gold in our balanced portfolios we did reduce it from its height but we we are we have been using it as a diversifier
1: you mentioned um, the importance of liquidity in the portfolio but uh- as, as I understand it, you're predominantly focused on ultra high net worth clients or clients at the upper end of the high net worth spectrum. So so why is liquidity so important for those clients?
0: It, 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 it wasn't, is the truth. I mean, I think that we see our, our clients are able by their scale of their wealth to to invest in uh, illiquid assets, private assets. And, and that's something we have been encouraging and using. As you know, we have a strong proprietary private equity capability. I think we meant in the liquid section, we just wanted some agility. This was more about nimbleness during the crisis. Uh, now we'd revert to a more a more balanced strategy.
1: And, and you mentioned the um, the prominence of thematic investing. And, and what, how are you defining a theme? From your perspective, and how <laughs> how how are you and how are you investing? Are you going via external asset managers? Are you doing it in-house?
0: We, we, we are primarily doing it in-house, um, and you know we have seen some. So I'll give you some examples of uh, ways that we've been we've been doing this. Uh, we've been, um, I mean, one is we we have a climate transition fund, which we actually launched during the um, the pandemic, which is about. Uh, those businesses that are transitioning uh, in uh, um, this new sustainability world. Uh, we've also launched a World Brands Fund, which is looking at uh, the top global brands. Uh, and then we have our long-standing Golden Age um, theme, which is looking at um, the silver generation and how the demographics is giving rise to opportunities. So those are the kind of themes that we're seeing strongly being replicated in our portfolios.
1: Moving on to what plans you have over over the coming year? what, what What's coming up?
0: Uh, look, I mean I think that that we are we are continuing to invest very strongly in our um, technology platform. Um, as you know, we have a a very strong technological capability, and I think that's been uh, that's been shown to be so critical during this period. Um so that is something that we are going to continue focusing on. Um, the other thing that, that has changed in the last year is that we've now created what we call a global UK business, which is bringing together the UK teams in London, Geneva and Zurich into one uh, regional business. Uh, and that's really enabling us to focus much more uh, in a much more laser focus way on uh, our commitment to the UK market. And what we mean by the UK market is the landmass of the United Kingdom and the crown dependencies and the overseas territories, as well as the trust businesses in Zurich and Geneva. So uh, there's been a a real focus on on bringing that together. And I think we will will continue to see that develop um, in the years ahead. Uh, uh, and I think that the the UK is for us a a key driver of uh, potential opportunity, and and so that strategic intent is is very clearly there.
1: Drilling down on the on the tech platform, so this is a, a platform that you're both using yourself and selling to smaller private banks and family offices, as I understand it. And and what's been the reception over the past couple of months? Have you still been able to sell it?
0: Look, I think that the technology, I think, has never been more important. I think owning your own proprietary technology platform during this process has been an unbelievably strong place to be. Um, you know, Lombard Odio has been investing now for 25 years in building its own technology platform. So as you may be aware, we have a single platform across all of our offices globally. Um, So that means that you can have a banker in London who's booking assets in Geneva or in Zurich or in Luxembourg or in Singapore operating for a single portal, which has been a hugely advantageous position for clients to be in. And then also for them to have really deep analysis capabilities on their their portfolios down to attribution analysis on individual stock contributions in portfolios. So that's really enriched the conversations. Um, in terms of the use of the technology platform uh, for others, yes, we have a very successful external asset manager business, uh, where these are smaller asset managers or family offices that are using our platform. Um, and, uh, and that provides them with effectively a bank in a box. And that has been a, a very successful strategy and is still, uh, still growing. So, so a long answer to your question is yes, is yes, we've had no slowdown in that demand.
1: And would you be able to reveal um, any of the clients?
0: Uh, no. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that I would let them reveal if they're using our platform. But, um, you know, it, 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 is, uh, it is a platform that we are extremely proud of and we're, we're going to be investing heavily in it over, over the years ahead. So oh. it, it will continue to be. And, yeah.
1: Sorry, How much revenue is it generating um, by selling that platform?
0: Uh, well, uh, let's put it like this. It, it, it is not a cost center. Uh, and I think that's very important because I think that that so often, if you've got outsourced technology arrangements, they are clearly a draw on your uh, business success. Whereas for us, this is something that is contributing to the bottom line, but also enabling us to reinvest the the proceeds that we might make into developing the platform further. And that's exactly what we're doing. I, I think that you, know, you you would not assume that Lombard Odier uh, from the cover is in fact, a technology business under the surface. And I think that's a, that's a very important part of our offering. And, you know, I think it was very far sighted of the partners to be, to be doing that 25 years ago. And we, we're seeing that now with a lot of other banks outsourcing their te- technology rather than owning it.
1: Lombardo Odia is obviously a predominantly Swiss brand. And how have you been raising its profile in the UK um, and other jurisdictions that perhaps it's not as popular in?
0: Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, the Lombardia is an international brand. I mean, you know, we attract internationally-minded clients from around the world. We have offices in 23 countries now, um, and, and our business is almost exactly divided in a third, a third, a third between our, our Swiss business, um, our, our European business, and our Asian business. So it is a, it is a pretty well-diversified business. Um, and uh, we are seeing those clients who are looking for international wealth solutions, particularly uh, um, families who are multi-jurisdictional, who are who are finding us as being a very good partner to be part of. Uh, I mean, I think that the other thing that makes us interesting, and our positioning is very clear on this, is that, that um, there is an element of Moses' strategy here, whereby we can go straight through the middle, because we're not trying to be a universal bank. We are trying to offer fantastic investment management services. And so that means that we can work with um, uh, multiple partners, uh, be it trust companies or lawyers or accountants or other partners, and we're not necessarily looking to hold the central relationship because our job is is to uh, provide investment management services. And one of the things that I think we're seeing at the upper end of the wealth spectrum now is a very clear disaggregation strategy. So what I mean by that is that there is a realisation that for uh, the wealthiest clients, they can afford to have true specialists uh, rather than going to a bank that's trying to offer everything in one place. Um, And so we're happy to offer really good investment management services supported by a great technology platform. And that, that combination works extremely well for us.
1: So what's your specialism? Investment management. Okay. It's quite quite broad, though.
0: Well, but but you say that. I mean, I think what you're seeing is that a lot of of universal banks are providing everything from mortgages through to uh, credit card solutions. We are just focused on the provision of portfolio management for uh, high and ultra-high net worth individuals.
1: But looking on the other side of that, having that integrated solution that some of the other banks may offer – is that not more advantageous on things like tax, perhaps, you know, being able to lend a- against assets, etc.? Yeah,
0: look, I, I think there's, I, I think the great thing about this this wealth market is there's a place for everyone, uh, and I'm not saying, meaning to sound uh, horribly diplomatic, but I think that is the truth. Um, but I think that we are able to provide Lombard lending, and we do extensively across our client portfolios. Uh, and, you know, as you know, we have an extremely strong balance sheet, so we're very happy to do that. And I think that Lombard Lending is a, is a good positioning, but we're not about to start offering retail mortgages uh, in the United Kingdom. It's just not the business that we're in. And and actually, I think clients are better served in that retail mortgage space by others.
1: You mentioned London and the UK earlier, and, and I, I guess the, the attractiveness of it. Why do you think it's still a destination for the ultra-wealthy considering Brexit, etc. Um, perhaps there are other jurisdictions, perhaps in Asia, that, that might be more attractive to the ultra-wealthy. W- why is London still key?
0: <laughs> I just want to point out, you mentioned Brexit first and not me.
1: Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah.
0: Just, <laughs> very, very clear. Um, uh, uh, look, I, I think that I'm not sure that Brexit will change London as a as a location. I mean, I think that what makes London so interesting is its sheer diversity and scale. I mean, it is a true international global city. And I think we see that quite a lot. It was interesting, I've uh, just been speaking to a client from a, uh, a major European country who's decided to relocate here, and I think the, the, the point that they're making is that they can see that they can have a a, uh, a very international existence in London. Uh, they have lots of diversity. They have the arts. They have the rule of law. They have the underlying security that exists here. So I think there is a very strong case for London as a global financial centre. And, and we absolutely think that is going to be the case in the in the years ahead so we remain confident about about london um, and uh, you know I, 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 and i don't think we'll be misplaced in that i think it will attract global wealth uh, forever and um, you know certainly uh, we've seen no slowdown in people wanting to relocate to the united kingdom
1: there's been quite a lot of negativity towards the ultra wealthy of late i mean some might characterize it as billionaire bashing etc um You've been having more in-depth conversations with your clients. Has that kind of topic come up? Um, that those kind of themes come to the fore, perhaps when they wouldn't have before. I haven't
0: actually heard it from clients, if I'm honest. I don't think that's a subject that's come up that much. I mean, I think that that you know, there is absolutely no doubt that the wealthy play a very, very important role in uh, in the in the economy of the UK. Uh, and I think we do need to ensure that we don't lose that uh, as we start thinking about the agenda from here. Um, and you know, I think that that London has always been a a natural home for the wealthy, as I mentioned before. And I, and I hope that that is in the mind of legislators uh, in the future. Um, and you know, clearly our resident non-domicile rules are extremely attractive, um, and you know, we hope those will remain. So, as, as, as the UK finds its new place in the, in the world order post our um, uh, exit from the European Union in economic terms at the end of this year.
1: In terms of boosting client numbers in, AU, in AU1, where have you seen, um, from which jurisdictions have you seen sort of the most inflows?
0: Actually, we've seen it from from us here in in the UK. We've seen it mainly from our UK domestic business, actually, an area that we've really grown very strongly, and uh, and that is good. We're seeing business sales, which is what a lot of our clients who realise substantial sums of money make their money from. Um, and, and we've seen that t- to be one of our biggest sources. We also have a, a dedicated uh, uh, Middle Eastern Russian team in the UK, as well as a, a team covering Francophone clients in the UK. So, uh, but the UK domestic business has been has been a, a, a big success in, in the last in the last few years, as we we've really seen people who are looking for a much more international view of the world coming to uh, a bank like Lombard Odier.
1: Well, Duncan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, John, thanks very much indeed, really appreciate it. Schroders
0: is built on 200 years of experience and expertise. We partner with our clients, constructing innovative products and solutions across private assets and alternatives, solutions, mutual funds, institutional, and wealth management. By combining our commitment to active management and focus on sustainability, our strategic capabilities are designed to deliver positive outcomes. With over 5,000 talented staff across 35 locations, we are able to stay close to our clients and understand their needs.